He's my spirit animal. This is like V for Vendetta. It's listening to our podcast. <laughs> all dudes, all the time. Oh, my troubles are over now. that in your pipe and smoke it. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that talks of nothing but you from dawn till the cows come home. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are married. Oh, do try to get past that. It makes you sound so angry all the time. Well, I am angry all the time. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a really good reason. So I guess carry on. Thank you. <laughs> so we do have the results of our survey for you. Mm-hmm. We had 102 respondents and due to a detail that I didn't realize when I set this survey up on SurveyMonkey, <laughs> we were only able to count 100 of those responses. Oh. So if you were one of the last two people, and I don't know how you would have any way of knowing if you were, <laughs> we apologize that your votes were not counted. Apparently, we need to pay the money oh, well. to see. Yeah. I'm like, come on. Don't give me a free survey. Some, but they, that's a greedy monkey. It, yeah, it was a very greedy monkey. But it was very it was very funny because I logged in and it was like, wow, you've got a really popular survey. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. <laughs> I am very popular monkey. I appreciate it. But the, the rankings pretty much stay the same as they were last week. Gosford Park finished in first with 57%. A Tom Repeats history slash fashion backwards standalone episode finished at 49%. Manor House slash Edwardian Country House finished in at 29%. And Julian Fellows Titanic finished fourth with 26%. Okay. We did have a schedule sort of blocked out for that, but we now have to go back and revise that schedule because we have a special Christmas time gift for you in May. Uh, due to the length and plot density of the Christmas special, we are doing this Christmas special recap in two, count them, two parts. It's a Christmas miracle. It certainly is. And I think it's all down to the fact that I'm wearing my Christmas socks today, <laughs> uh, featuring snowflakes and penguins. Ooh. Solely for the purpose of recording this podcast. It has nothing to do with the fact that all my other socks are dirty. Right. That'd Definitely, be- yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. It is insane. Yeah, but we will uh, try and post kind of a schedule for you guys so you know what we're covering when as soon as we kind of get that figured out. But uh, the basic overarching plan is that we will do Gosford Park first, and then we will get going in um, with Manor House recaps. Yeah. And we will probably do the Tom Repeats history, Fashion Backwards. We're probably going to do two of those, actually. Mm-hmm. Part of it depends on you guys. If there's anything that you specifically want addressed, uh, you can send your questions to us. Those will take a little bit longer because there's some books that we want to read that have been recommended, and we need a little bit of time to kind of read those and right, get all of our right. ducks in a row. So those are coming. It's just going to be a little bit longer than anticipated. Uh, and then we will probably finish up this block of programming with Titanic. Okay. Julian Fellows version. That's right. 2012. <laughs> so that's where we stand. So uh, looking forward to continuing on this journey with all of you. It's pretty exciting. And next we have the country report. That is correct. We have two new countries to report this week. We have Sudan which is pretty exciting, and Anonymous Proxy. Ooh, sexy. Yeah, I know. I think so. it's just because it has a letter X in it. <laughs> well, and, and it's Y. Yeah, it's anonymous. It's like V for Vendetta is listening true. to our podcast. <laughs> remember, remember to download up yours downstairs. 
is what he would say, I'm sure. I would imagine so. All right, so now on to telegrams from our cousins. First, we have a note from Cousin Raymond. He says, I thought Thomas poisoned Mr. Pamuk as soon as he died, and now I wish I'd emailed you first. (laughs) The motive is there since Mr. Pamuk knows Thomas is gay. I figure Thomas used the same poison that Daisy nearly killed everyone with in the first episode. It's either that or Mary has an even deadlier vagina than Melisander on Game of Thrones. (laughs) That's pretty deadly. That's very deadly. (laughs) Thank you, Cousin Raymond. I always love it when people make Game of Thrones references in their telegrams. So, uh, <laughs> yes. that's awesome. If only Thomas could produce a shadow baby. <laughs> um, and I, I will say that that does retroactively add some justification to that inane Daisy poisoning storyline. It does, actually, because so, I had forgotten that it was in the same episode. Right, so. right. So there is that to consider. Uh, we next have a telegram from Cousin Scott. He writes, Dear Cousins Kelly and Tom, the theory about Thomas poisoning Pamuk is intriguing, and I actually consider that possibility when the event happened. Think about it. Thomas had just been spurned by the Duke of Crowborough. Then, after an epic failed pass at the bit of a dandy Pamuk, Thomas is essentially blackmailed by Pamuk to gain access to Lady Mary's bedroom. As to supposed lack of access to poison, recall the incident where Mrs. Patmore mentioned poison in a bowl in the kitchen, which, as it happened, was the same size as another bowl of something edible to be taken upstairs, and Daisy had nearly poisoned the entire dining party by giving William the wrong bowl to run upstairs, but for William's luckily bringing the poisonous bowl back downstairs with a question about it. Hence, it seems to me that Thomas might well have had access to poison. He knew where the wine was and was able to nick that without much suspicion, so why not a bit of poison? Also, given the mercy-killing theory about the circumstances of the blind officer's apparent suicide, it is entirely plausible that he could have had a role in Pamuk's death, albeit unmerciful. How Thomas actually could have gone about it is an admitted mystery, but it is not beyond the realm of possibility. Indeed, I would not be surprised if it was Thomas who poisoned Mrs. Bates in a dastardly attempt to frame Mr. Bates. Okay, perhaps a stretch, but the concept of Thomas as rampant psychopath is fun to think about. It seems like the only thing missing is a fluffy white cat for him to hold and stroke. And you have to wonder how Thomas will get on, or not, with Alfred, O'Brien's nephew, who will be the new footman in Series 3. Wonderful podcast, as always, Cousin Scott. I like this concept of Thomas as Bond villain. Because <laughs> yes. he totally has a deformity already. That's He's, like, true. ready to go. Yeah, that's You know, the physical point. embodiment of his rotting moral interior. Yeah, much, like, much like Luke Skywalker's hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although he wasn't a psychopath, right? Well, his, I guess depending on his, your reading of Star Wars. Well, his art because when he cuts off Darth Vader's hand at the end, it's like symbolic that he's slowly oh, turning into Darth Vader. Right. Yeah, that's right. I always forget about the symbolism and just focus on the Ewoks. <laughs> yes, and I also uh, am curious how how Thomas will get on with O'Brien's nephew. I had forgotten that that was. There's so little that we know about Series 3, and we're late enough in in this series that I feel like we can talk about some of these developments. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've talked already about uh, Martha Levinson, who is McGee's mother, played by Shirley MacLaine. She's coming in. And then O'Brien has schemed her way into getting her nephew on as the replacement William. Mm. I'm I'm just curious how that's going to play out. You know, is he going to be down with O'Brien's schemes, or or is he going to, you know, like have a heart of gold? It's, I really have no idea. It's, uh, it's gonna be interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and thanks to, uh, everyone for pointing out the fact that there is poison in the house. Right. Which obviously we had not right. considered. Yeah. I still, I, and I like the connection between the, the possible mercy killing and this killing. But I mean, it just seems like what we know of Thomas, he's a bit of a gloater. So yeah. you think if that was intentional, 
he would have gloated to Miss O'Brien. But maybe he's playing a deeper game than even Julian Fellows realizes. <laughs> right. Could be. Quick, to the fan fiction! <laughs> Next we have a telegram from Cousin Annette. Dearest Cousins Kelly and Tom, I adore your podcast and have listened to each episode multiple times. I hope you will indulge me as I share a theory about the murder of Mrs. Bates, which popped into my mind whilst again viewing the episode about the demise of Mr. Pamuk. My reasoning went like this. Who is the most evil character ever? Thomas, who will do anything to get what he wants, even to the extent of getting his own hand shot off. Thomas, who wanted to shut up Mr. Pamuk. Thomas, who had access to Mr. Pamuk. Thomas, my conjecture is that Thomas was shocked in the morning not to find Mr. Pamuk dead, but to find him in his own room, which he blithely approached, expecting it to be empty after the previous night's shenanigans. What? Wait, he can't be here. How? But what? That's in parentheses. And was funny. <laughs> All this being reasoned, it popped into my head, as before mentioned, that if Thomas was indeed a poisoner once, why not a poisoner twice? Who else was poisoned? Mrs. Bates. And who would love to see Mr. Bates swing for the murder of his wife more than Thomas? Could he not have seized the opportunity when he was witness in the downstairs corridors to Mr. Bates' anger preceding his last visit to his spouse? Being evil Thomas, he no doubt used a poison that he procured from his secret black market sources and keeps always on hand for just such occasions. Let's have him also forging the letter from Mrs. Bates saying that she feared for her life just for good measure. I can't believe that B ever feared for anything. I'm assuming that means Vera, Mrs. Bates. Or as in the B in apartment 23. Oh, the biped. Incidentally, in case that doesn't fly, I have another theory about who killed Mrs. Bates. It was that nasty newspaper man, Mr. What's-His-Face, <laughs> uh, perhaps known to some of you as Sir Richard Carlyle, <laughs> who was engaged to marry Mary. Too bad she is so dour, for I so wanted to say Mary, 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 but that would be pushing the truth way too far. True. When they broke up, as he stood in the doorway just before departing, he said something about loving her beyond what she could even imagine, at which point my Downton viewing companion, Cousin Catherine, immediately cried out, He had Mrs. Bates killed! Which I think makes a lot of sense, too, because if anyone matches Thomas in scheming evilness, it is that creep. The newspaper man, not my lovely Cousin Catherine. Of course. Also, for my last two bits of kindling on the controversial fires, I do not believe that Mr. Pamuk and Mary had intercourse at all, but times being what they were, just some tender, heavy petting. Otherwise, she, being very virginal, would have been ashamed and appalled by what had gone on in her bed, not a whit of which is ever apparent. She seems to be just plain sad, which I cannot but believe would be complicated had a 0-60 to course in sex education occurred in a few brief hours that night. I'm thinking it was more a 0-16 to course with the kindly good fellow from Turkey. I am so glad to get this all off my chest, but that is more than enough for now. Thank you so very much for this opportunity. Gratefully yours, your cousin from the wilds of the state of Washington. Okay. There's a lot to unpack here. Yes. So we won't spend too much time on Thomas killing Mr. Pamuk. I think we've we've discussed right. that from many angles, and we agree that it's plausible, although improbable. Yes. And my only real critique on the theory that Thomas killed Mrs. Bates is that he would have had to be in London that day, right. and I believe there are shots of him being in Downton that day. Right. Well, well Because just, that's the day that he's sort of insinuating himself, or no. Well, I mean, whichever day it is, like, for him to get permission to go away for to London for a day, like, that, it's not something, he he can't just go to London anytime right. he feels and like it. And it wouldn't, definitely not have occurred on the same day as Mr. Bates had gone to London. Right, right. And, yeah, I don't know, I think the, the theory about Sir Richard Carlyle having her killed has a little bit more uh a little bit more behind it. Yeah. Although I mean I honestly don't see him as a 
you know, hiring killers type of guy. Yeah, well, and I think he had enough sort of leverage on her that her continuing to live didn't bother him. And he doesn't care what goes on between her and Mr. Bates. Right. And moreover, it doesn't really help Mary out that much. Yeah. You know, like... Yeah. It doesn't matter that much. Right. There's still plenty of people who know what happened. <laughs> yeah. She's far from the only one. Clearly. Yeah, and I I still think some kind of sex happened with Mr. Pamuk. Right. I mean, I think that's an interesting theory, and, and I could kind of see that. The, I think the main difference that I have with Cousin Annette is her description of the kindly good fellow from Turkey is not a description that I find meeting Mr. Pamuk. Yes, fellow, yes. From Turkey, for sure. <laughs> kindly right. and good, he... Yeah. Mm, he was we, very... He was very coercy. Yeah, so it's it's hard for me to see him being satisfied with that sort of thing, but not out of the question. Well, there's that in all of his creepy hints that he dropped prior to their encounter, where he was all like, oh, we have to endure a little pain to experience pleasure. And Mary was like, this is England. It's just pain all the time. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Or maybe Mary knew more than we thought she did, and she was just like, lay on your back and think of turkey. (laughs) You know, we may never know. (laughs) Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Jules, who writes, Thank you for allowing DA to stay alive in my heart during this incredibly long hiatus. I discovered your podcast after finishing both series, and am now reliving it through your recaps and learning so much about history in the meantime. I have just begun the second series podcast. I recently listened to the episode where you pontificate about the origins of Isis and Pharaoh's names. Perhaps since the podcast was released, you figured this out. But according to Wikipedia, Julian Fellows was born in Cairo, Egypt. See below. Uh, there's a footnote writing... Fellows was born in Cairo, Egypt, the youngest son of Olwen, nay Stuart Jones, and Peregrine Edward Launcelot Fellows. Wow. Yeah. That is several mouthfuls. (laughs) Yes, it is. Jules continues, I think Brits were exploring slash fascinated with Egypt in the early 20th century, as a lot of Agatha Christie canon seems to tie into that place as well. I have one last thought slash question. I know this doesn't exactly fit into your podcast format, but I'd like to know a bit more about each of you. You mentioned that you're both originally from Ohio and now live in Oakland, which was also my home for 10 years, but I would love to know your ages and occupations just out of curiosity. Thank you again for a job well done. Cheers, Cousin Jules. All right. Well, that is very interesting uh, that he was born in Cairo. I did yeah, not know that. So likewise. thank you, Jules, for alerting us to that fact. Yeah. And as to our ages, uh, well, I've heard a lady never tells, <laughs> but I myself am 29, and I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I am 32, coming up on 33. And I was uh, born and raised in Dayton, Ohio, just up the road from Cincinnati. We actually met, I went to college in Dayton, Ohio, and we met uh, in my senior year of college doing a production of Taming of the Shrew. Yes. In which I played the shrew. <laughs> It's and true. Tom was playing Tronio. Tronio, Tronio. Yes. So we had no no stage time together, almost. Yeah. But at some point, we started talking and uh, started dating, and now we have this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that pretty much fills in the intervening <laughs> time, I think. Uh, and as for my occupation, I am a comedy specialist with a successful internet radio company. Yep. And uh, I'm a computer programmer for a medical software company. So yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, that's all the the major pit stops along the way. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> I hope we've uh, satisfied your curiosity there, cousin Jules. <laughs> Next, we have a letter from cousin Elizabeth. 
Dear Tom and Kelly, I've been listening to your podcast faithfully from the beginning, but this is my first telegram. You don't know how thrilled I am to hear that Manor House is in the running to be a hiatus recap. My obsession with the Edwardian era causes me to love the show in its own right. However, I am also personally attached by the fact that my father was the now-retired executive at WNET in New York who brought the series to PBS. It was the same department at WNET who made the House series, Frontier House, Colonial House, Texas Ranch House. In fact, you may be interested to know that there was quite a push to try to recreate the master-servant appeal of Manor House by producing a plantation house for PBS. However, my southern-born father convinced those New Yorkers that portraying slavery on a reality TV show was probably not a good idea. We couldn't agree more. That (laughs) sounds horrible. Yeah. It sounds worse than Texas Ranch House. Yes, and that was terrible. It was. But entertaining. <laughs> yes. I told my dad last week that I voted for Manor House to be recapped, and I can't tell you how excited he was. After a prolific and award-winning career in documentary, TV, and journalism, he has never had any of his work be the subject of a podcast. I may actually get him to learn how to use an iPod by himself. Right now, he can only download things when my brother is home from college. I have cast my votes, and I hope Manor House stays in the top three. I would try to bribe you to bring it off the bubble with some Manor House swag, but I don't think there is any Manor House swag. This is PBS, after all, and even I have to make a donation before I can get my hands on a tote bag. Keep up the good work with the podcast. I look forward to hearing the final, sniff, sniff, DA episode of the year. And she signs as our maiden aunt. (laughs) So we're getting quite the population. We've got first cousin Matt, dowager cousin Jackie, maiden aunt Elizabeth. It's all very exciting. Yeah, yeah. No, and that is super cool. Like, yeah. We are such huge fans of the House series. Yeah, absolutely. I think the only one that we haven't seen from the ones uh, that Cousin Elizabeth listed is Colonial House. I saw part of that. Okay. Um, and, well, it was before I had DVR, so I missed some episodes. But yeah, Frontier House was the first one I ever saw. and I That it, one is amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Yeah. That, that one has everything. Like, it's got, you know, a bunch of people to root for, some people to root against. And that's the thing, too, because there's there's so many different families in there. Mm-hmm. The fact that one of the families is jerky, <laughs> like, is fine. As opposed to Texas Ranch House, where there's only the one family right. and their employees. And that family was super jerky. Yeah. Ah, don't even get us started on Texas Ranch House. <laughs> it's already too late. We've already talked about this way too long. But yeah. we have a lot of enthusiasm. So thanks again to Cousin Elizabeth's dad for being awesome and yeah. helping all those series get produced. Because yes. they're super cool. Yes. Very much has improved our lives. And donate to your local PBS affiliate. We now have a telegram from Cousin Lily. She writes, Dear Cousins Kelly and Tom, I finally caught up with all of your podcasts after binge listening for seven days. I literally jumped into my car for my 45-minute commute to work. Thank you for your hilarious yet educational recaps and special segments. As I have previously mentioned, I am stalking you on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. I have listened to hundreds of podcasts, and yours is definitely the best. I would love to be one of your cousins, except that I feel more affiliation with the downstairs people, especially Mrs. Hughes. So I would like to be called Mrs. Grant. If you don't like that, you can call me Cousin Lily. Your pick. So I, I apologize. This is Mrs. Grant. <laughs> I have many things to say about every character, but I don't want to take away too much of your time, so I'll write often but limit to a few characters each. I first want to say I'm Team Hughes all the way. I want her to be my mother. She's smart, caring, badass, and so damn cute. If I was born in the Edwardian age, I want to be her, and I really want to see her and Carson make out. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> also, I miss Gwen very much. 
turns out the actress who plays her is an actual lady who was born and raised in a castle, Licklyhead Castle in Scotland, which makes her role all the more endearing. While I wish her the best in her secretarial job, I cannot help but wish she could come back. Jane and Ethel suck. Here, here. Yes. I really hate Branson. I never liked him. He is an asshole. He always treated Sybil with disdain. He's way too full of himself for no reason whatsoever, and he's not even cute. He does not respect her, and I bet he beats her after they get married. He just looks like the wife-beater type. Sybil doesn't know what she's doing. I think it would be funny if their kid grew up to be a rebel and pour yucky dark liquid on his head. (laughs) I have a couple suggestions on the podcast. One, you can say, we're properly married instead of we're married, in honor of Matthew's ghost of paralysis past. Two, I dislike character ceasefire. Please stop doing it. Rip apart anybody you want because it's hilarious to be mean. Finally, a big thank you for liking my idea for Major Astash. You made my day. Sincerely yours, Mrs. Grant. And that reference there at the end uh, was a carrier pigeon on Twitter where she suggested that we refer to Major Bryant as Major Astash. Yes. Because he is an asshole, he is an asshole with a mustache. So we will do that if he comes up again. Yes. And I like the properly married idea. It's That's true. That's fun. And, uh, and I mean, we are. Wink. We are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think, actually, we are not going to do character ceasefire on the Christmas special. And, I mean, Branson's gone anyway, so, like, what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Christopher. Dearest Cousins, I am writing you from the humble village of Nashville, Tennessee, somewhere west of Ripon, three question marks, and just wanted to thank you for putting together such a complex and well-administered podcast. It is ever so satisfactory to me that I am not alone in my feelings that Mr. Bates is impossibly obnoxious and irritatingly self-sacrificing. Lord Grantham might be mentally handicapped, Anna is a goddess in a bonnet, and McGee is most likely from another planet and or has a brain made of pudding. (laughs) I did want to query, or perhaps just bring up for discussion, how it seems that while Edith is trying to be made less reprehensible in the second series, it seems to be hollow and without any real Julian Fellows just seems to want to make Edith likable now, and not just like a flat mustache twirling villain who ties prettier girls, i.e. any girl breathing, to the railroad tracks. So he writes a few redeeming scenes for her, and we are supposed to be Team Edith? Are we to forget that she wrote the Turkish ambassador to tell them how her own sister killed Kamal Pamuk with an inescapable, murderous corset that she keeps in her vagina? (laughs) War be damned, I still think she is a bitch. Am I wrong here? Thank you again for your most excellent podcast. It is truly a pleasure. May your raspberry meringues never be salty and your overbites be plentiful. Which is a fantastic sign-off. It is. That's amazing. Yeah, it's very good. And uh, I agree that the redemption of Edith is pretty shallow. I agree. And I think, honestly, that what carries it is the performance. Oh, yeah. The performance is spectacular. She makes it work. And I mean, you know, I think we do have to, well, we don't have to because Julian Fellows doesn't feel the need to, but we can, if we choose, keep in mind the amount of time that is really passing here. That's true. And again, it's just that whatever the scene is where she kind of decides to not be a jerk anymore, that scene just didn't get included. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we just kind of see the end result. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I guess we see Mary saying, oh, you know, Edith's not trying to stir up trouble but you know it's 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 a little eh, yeah okay yeah no i mean the it's not really supported by the writing but i don't know it never bothered me particularly yeah and again i think that well the performance is very nuanced yeah and, and uh laura carmichael who plays edith is just really good at acting without dialogue just her yeah. facial expressions yeah. are, are quite good so yeah next we have a telegram from cousin scott 
who writes, Dear Cousins Tom and Kelly, I cannot believe that O'Brien did not at least get a mention for best evasion in cholera. She manages to evade coming totally clean with McGee about the slippery soap incident, no pun intended, cue the McGee. <laughs> Thank you. She thinks McGee is going to snuff it, cannot bring herself to admit what she did in the face of all the praise she doesn't deserve. Then McGee miraculously survives, at which point O'Brien breathes a deep sigh of relief and says no more about it. That's about as good an evasion as you could ask for, I think. Your cousin, Scott. I am going to dispute that. Okay. Because to me, that was, you know, one of Julian Fellows' many attempts, aborted attempts at an actual confrontation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think O'Brien genuinely wanted to tell her. Right. But then, you know, realized she was delirious and then Lord Grantham came in and so the opportunity kind of passed. I'm not going to say she wasn't trying to sort of, you know, hedge her bets in case McGee did die. I'm not trying to say that it wasn't, you know, maybe not the best time right. to try. But I don't, I don't think she, if she was trying to evade it, she didn't have to stay there with her the whole time. Agreed. So I rarely flat out disagree <laughs> with a cousin. But in this case, I think I will flat out disagree. And finally, we have a telegram from Cousin Caleb, a.k.a. Mr. Voldemorton. Hey, guys, the show just keeps getting better. Thanks for all your great work, and thanks for continuing to use my track as the theme. As I was doing my daily procrastination of homework and perusal of YouTube, I came across this. This being a uh, fun little music video called The Fresh Prince of Downton, which we've shared on Twitter and Facebook, and you can check that out. Do enjoy and share with the rest of the cousins. Best cousin Caleb. P.S. Since everyone seems to be asking to be cousin of the week, how come I was never cousin of the week for my track? How about you get on that? I don't really care, though. I'm just glad you guys are just doing a great show, as always. Cheers! Well, number one, thank you. Yes. And number two, you're totally right. Yeah, absolutely. This is really egregious. Yeah. This is like Lord Grantham not really loving his daughter's type <laughs> egregious. Yeah, like, we... we might as well be trying to marry you off to, like, <laughs> the Duke of Crobro or something. Yeah. We, we really failed you on that one. And, and uh, yeah, and if those of you who, who have forgotten, Cousin Caleb is the one who put together our Dubstep Abbey remix on request. Yeah. Which is so awesome. Yeah. Uh, it was one of the first pieces of fan art that this uh, podcast inspired. And we love it. I mean, I can't hear the regular uh, <laughs> the regular theme song when we watch episodes anymore without expecting to hear the sort of space age, <laughs> yeah, yeah, dubstepy yeah. things. And we didn't mention it, I don't think, on the last podcast, but Cousin Levi at LeviathanLeague.com has done more fan art. He did the Carson Cave, and he also did Holding It Together with Mrs. Hughes. Yes. So be sure and go to his website and check those out. They are absolutely stunning. Yes. Really, really cool stuff. You will not be sorry. And look at the rest of his work and oh, buy yeah. some of his prints because I really want to. <laughs> and we should all do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> Here, here. All right. So that does it. Cousin Caleb is cousin of the week. Hopefully. Did we not make that clear? I think we may not have made that clear. So let's be extra clear. Cousin Caleb, cousin of the week. Congratulations, sir. Wear it in good health. And thank you again for the awesome track. Yeah. It's great. All right, so I think that brings us to the recap proper. Okay. Are we ready to go? We're ready. Well, my first note is, oh my God, it's different credits. (laughs) It's a Christmas tree. Christmas 1919. (laughs) This is verbatim what I said. Yeah. This is on my second viewing, but I was so (laughs) excited. I love Christmas. Yeah. Christmas is like my favorite, favorite holiday. So I love, love, love British Christmas specials. I think they're the coolest. They. Well, you're right. They are. 
in the credits, they're bringing in a giant tree from somewhere on the estate for the Christmas tree, and we see it set up in the hall. They're uh, decorating the tree. Yeah, don't let O'Brien help decorate. She'll kill its seedling. <laughs> it's true. And we see Mrs. Hughes watching the tree get yeah, lit. Yeah, but not before she shoes Daisy out of, like, Daisy, like, stops to gawk at the Christmas tree, and she's, like, got a bunch of, like, dirty laundry. And Mrs. <laughs> Hughes is like, shoo, shoo, get out of here! <laughs> Christmas isn't for you! <laughs> Poor Daisy. <laughs> yeah. And a car pulls up. It is Lady Rosamond who stops at the main entrance along with a mystery woman. And she greets Mary, who I think we are safe to assume is her favorite niece Yeah, at this point. Or at least seems uh, the most likely to be a bitter old nag in the same way <laughs> that Rosamond is. So yeah. they get along splendidly. Once Carlisle joins Marmaduke in the <laughs> men's club in the sky. <laughs> And inside, we see the Dowager Countess look at a Christmas card and then disgustedly put it down. And we never find out who it was from or why this Christmas card is so offensive to her. But it's one of the great Maggie Smith moments. She's just just freaking had it. Yeah. She can't take it anymore. (laughs) Downstairs, all the servants are lined up and the family are handing out uh, Christmas gifts. This would have happened in any large house. They would have given each one of their employees a Christmas gift. I think in many cases it was new uniforms, mm. which is kind of a crappy gift. It, but the yeah. Crawleys seem like they are, are giving them also some little personal items. Yeah. So Mary, Edith, McGee, and Lord Grantham are all standing up there. And they give Anna her Christmas gift. And they McGee tells her that they have been praying for her. And Anna says, well, I'm a Wiccan, but thanks. <laughs> Uh, conspicuously absent from this family tableau is Sybil. Anna goes back to her place in line with the rest of the servants. It's kind of like when they go get meals in 1984, is what this reminds me of. Uh, But Mrs. Hughes wants to know from Anna what McGee said, and Anna says she was just being kind, and she provides the exposition that her husband is on trial for his life. What? He is, uh, you know, he's been charged with murder, apparently, and and is going to trial. And Mrs. Hughes says that she's still old-fashioned enough to think that, you know, justice will be served, and he won't be found guilty if he's not guilty guilty. Right. The implication, of course, being that Mr. Bates is not guilty. Mrs. Hughes is far more confident of that than many others. Pretty much everyone. Yeah. Nobody, nobody <laughs> else seems to think he can beat this murder rap. Yeah. We see Carson opening his gift. It is a book entitled The Royal Families of Europe, which I believe is from the series Doddering Relics of a Bygone Age. Oh, come on, Tom. He gets <laughs> as excited as you did when I gave you that Cleopatra biography for Christmas. <laughs> That's a fair point. I always think of you as my Carson. (laughs) I'm flattered. (laughs) Anna opens her gift, and it is a locket from Mary. So you will always remember the night we dragged a dead foreigner out of my bedroom. (laughs) There's a lock of his hair in there. I'm not going to say from where. (laughs) But I snipped it right before we left the room. (laughs) Downstairs, the servants are celebrating. They're pulling crackers, which are so awesome. Yeah. We should definitely get some crackers for Christmas this year. We should. They're super fun. If you're not familiar with crackers, they're these little things, and you pull them, and they they, they pop open, and they have like a paper hat and sometimes a little toy. Just little goofy stuff. But really, the, the big fun is pulling them apart because they smell like gunpowder. Yeah. But Mrs. Hughes says she doesn't want to spoil their fun, but she herself could not put on a paper hat. 
and celebrate while Mr. Bates is, you know, wasting away in some horrible prison. But if any of you are insensitive, go ahead. Enjoy yourselves, you <laughs> monsters. <laughs> and Carson and Mrs. Hughes are both just kind of generally sad about Mr. Bates and they're chatting about him. And Rosamond's maid, who was the mystery woman who got out of the car with her, Indeed. she asks if Bates is the murderer. And Carson indignantly sputters that he's only been accused. But she's like, oh, only? That's it? Oh, I'm sorry. If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Like, what is this? Come on. (laughs) If the cane don't fit. (laughs) In the large library, the family is opening their gifts, while Sir Richard complains about the fact that he's having to serve himself luncheon from off of the table. Apparently, it's a Downton tradition to kindly let the servants have, you know... More than 15 minutes to themselves. Right. Well, they have their, their, the servants have their Christmas feast, uh, at lunchtime. Right. For luncheon. <laughs> yes. And then the, uh, upstairs people have their feast in the evening. Right. Yeah, no, and it's very nice because not everybody mm-hmm. does this. Well, and as Carlisle says, that's not how we'll do it at Haxby. And Maggie Smith says that she can certainly believe that in a very, uh, <laughs> dismissive way. She feels about Carlisle like she feels about that Christmas card. True. <laughs> And she then opens her present from Matthew and Isabel and is baffled by it. Uh, and Isabel says, it's a nutcracker. We thought you might enjoy it for cracking your nuts. And just the look on <laughs> Penelope Wilton's face is so priceless. Because I genuinely don't think this is supposed to be a double entendre or anything. Right. Maggie Smith just doesn't know what a nutcracker is. <laughs> right. And I should have looked into the history of the nutcracker a little bit and found out, like, because this is a new thing. Like, people right. have had to crack nuts <laughs> for many, many eons the in challenge- order to survive. Yeah, the challenge of how to get tasty parts out of a nut is one of the oldest challenges that humanity has overcome. It's true. <laughs> but uh, it's a fantastic scene. Yes. This is just, it's just so, it, this whole thing is delightful. Yeah. The whole Christmas special is just <laughs> classic. Yeah. All, all the Christmas parts of the Christmas special. Oh, yeah. Highly enjoyable. Yes. All the Bates parts. Nah. Fortunately, he's in jail, so they're few and far between. <laughs> yes. Edith wants to know who will be joining them on New Year's Day for the shoot, so apparently Lord Grantham is, has revved up the shoot again. Yes. It's been enough time since the war ended. He says, the usual guns. Old people you know. And I want to slap him with a glove. <laughs> uh, Edith inv- asks if he invited Anthony Strallen, which he did, although Anthony Strallen refused to come for all three days of shooting. He's, yes. He's put off the invitation. Apparently, he was very keen to shoot before the war, Edith says, but now he's not so much. Lord Grantham also says that Rosamond forced him to invite Lord Jinx Hepworth, <laughs> shocking the Dowager Countess, who knew Jinx's father in the late 1860s. And then she gets very wistful, which is unusual. Yeah. Uh, she just gets very sort of like down and, and says in French, but where are the snows of yesteryear? Mm-hmm. So uh, Dowager Countess, thinking about her immortality a little bit. Yeah. Probably that nutcracker is what did it. I know anytime I see a nutcracker, I think, ah, but we're all ashes to ashes in the end, aren't we? (laughs) One minute you're playing the sugar plum fairy. (laughs) The next, you you have a nutcracker? Oh, was that, what's in the nutcracker? Various fairies? There's mice? Yeah, the the sugar plum fairy is the main fairy. Oh, Clara is the little girl who gets the nut. Oh, I get it, because of the nutcracker. Yeah, (laughs) um 
That's from the upcoming uh, Adam Sandler movie, <laughs> The Fart Cracker. I only hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> uh, I would probably go see that. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'll, I'll, Here's a nutcracker <laughs> for cracking your nuts. <laughs> That was my Adam Sandler impression. I'll wait and see if Peter Travers of Rolling Stone likes it. <laughs> uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> A fantastic extravagance. <laughs> Fart stars. <laughs> How did this happen? All right. <laughs> we can all cut it out in post. <laughs> we see Matthew hanging up the telephone. Mary comes in and he says that Isabel, or and she says that Isabel told her that he was calling for news of Mr. Squire. Yeah, in this episode, there's a lot of oh, so and so told me that you were telling somebody else this, and right. this is clearly what you're doing, just to because Julian Fellows won't allow us to have any conversations where anything actually <laughs> gets directly any no knowledge should ever be directly transferred between characters on the right. show. So. <laughs> But yes, the thing that we are relayed in this scene is that Mr. Swire is dying. Like daughter, like father. <laughs> yep. That weak chest. <laughs> so uh, then Carlisle comes in and Mary tells him what Matthew told him he heard from somebody on the phone. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> that all sounds about right. Yeah. And he tells Matthew to warn Robert. So he's apparently on first name terms. Yeah, with, doing way better than fake Patrick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if If... Matthew is going to miss the shoot. Matthew says that he will return on New Year's Day because Mr. Swire won't last that long. Uh, I I think the Swire family crest is serving others through dying. <laughs> but he apologizes for casting a gloom. Really, Mr. Swire should be apologizing. Um, <laughs> well, I think his chest is too weak to verbalize, Tom. God, have some sympathy. It's Christmas. <laughs> But Mary says he couldn't cast a gloom because they're all under the shadow of Bates's trial. Uh, with his eyes, Sir Richard says, I'm not. Yeah. Who? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had the good sense to hire a non-murdering valet. It's not that hard. They're <laughs> everywhere after the war. Yes. And Mary says that she's going to attend the trial with Papa and some of the servants. Matthew asks if he should go along to explain what's happening, because as we all recall, he is a solicitor. Mm-hmm. And then he says to Carlisle, or will you do that? Because I wonder how much legal expertise Richard Carlisle has. Right. Because I, I always read that line as saying that Mary needs a man to explain the ins and outs of the legal proceedings. Right. I mean, I'm not yeah, saying Matthew's not uniquely qualified because right, he is, right, right. but I read it as she's, you know, too much of a stupid woman to understand the difficult processes of yeah. British law, which which makes sense. Yeah. Um, but Sir Richard is returning to work the day after the shoot because he's evil, or because you know he has a job and is a productive member of society. That's not how it's framed. <laughs> And Carson comes in and shoes everybody away for some reason because the scene is over. Downstairs in the kitchen, Daisy finds a Ouija board because uh, I keep a Ouija board in my kitchen. Sure. It doubles as a cutting board uh, <laughs> if you're cutting up ghost onions. <laughs> and O'Brien actually tells her it's for uh, playing planchette. Yeah. And I did look into this. 
which you think I would know more about because the Ouija board actually figured into my one-person acting school thesis quite prominently. What? So the planchette is the the rolling pointer, basically, okay. that you use to play Ouija board. And uh, this was a very popular practice uh, at this time and, you know, later. Yeah. The famous poet uh, W.B. Yeats was a big proponent of it, hmm. as was later... Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath used it because Yates used it. Oh. Uh, but they would frequently use it where you would tie a pencil to the planchette and they would do like ghost writing. So oh, okay. like the spirits were controlling, you know, your poetry or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's all kind of ridiculous. Right. But it was it was very popular and, and a lot of people put a lot of stock in it. Well, and, just, and still do. Yeah. I just got excited. I was like, ooh, the maids will all have a big sleepover. <laughs> they'll play planchette. They'll gossip about boys. And in the morning, they'll all be fired. <laughs> Then upstairs, we see Carson bringing in the flaming pudding. I believe it's a plum pudding. Possibly, but whatever it is, it's on fire. (laughs) (laughs) And it's apparently Sybil's favorite. Too bad she's not there to eat it. Yeah. She's off having Christmas in Dublin. I assume it's just all potatoes. Well, and that monkey. (laughs) They were fattening it up. (laughs) Nothing goes with potatoes like monkey. (laughs) And the Dowager Countess cuts into the pudding saying, Happy Christmas. I would just like to pause for a minute and say that the phrase Happy Christmas, so much better than Merry Christmas. Agreed. And I love to say Merry Christmas. Even after the 13 years I spent in retail hell, <laughs> I just think saying Happy Christmas, and maybe it's just because it's from a different culture. Yeah. But I don't know. British people always seem happy when they say it. Yeah. Whereas when people in America say Merry Christmas, I was like, Oh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> In jail. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. That could be. We're a nation of Mr. Potters. <laughs> Edith reminds everyone to make a wish. Since that's worked out so well on this show so far. <laughs> right. And uh, Mary says a wish and a prayer. Carlisle then sums up the entire second series by asking, is this about Bates again? <laughs> and no one answers him. <laughs> They're like, you may be a sir, but shut up! <laughs> And Rosamond says that her maid says that the servants' hall is full of it. Uh, I would purport that her maid is full of it because, <laughs> like, Mrs. Hughes and Carson were talking about it. Nobody else cares. Yeah. Except for Anna. But she didn't right. appear to be in that scene. Right. Well, that looks like a bunch of mystery servants. Yeah, and Anna has an excuse. Matthew says that it's terrible and that Bates is innocent. And Sir Richard says that he's sure they all hope so. He also asks Lord Grantham how Murray was able to arrange to have the trial in York. Lord Grantham says he doesn't know. But really, it's because Murray's the walrus. <laughs> Cuckoo Pichu. Yes. Uh, and I will be addressing that subject later. Um, but McGee says that Murray is very confident. I believe the Dowager Countess says that all lawyers are confident until the verdict is rendered. <laughs> so she may be getting into that pudding, but she is still as sharp as the edge of the knife she used to cut it. Yes. Downstairs, O'Brien, Thomas, Rosamond's maid, and the mystery servants play with the planchette. Which, I don't know why they're... The dead are not going to talk to mystery servants. Come yeah, on. they don't even have names. Yeah. And neither does Rosamond's maid at this point. True. So, so Miss O'Brien is just going, Is anyone there? <laughs> is anyone there? It's like the end of Titanic. It is like the end of Titanic. <laughs> is anyone dead out there? <laughs> Can anyone hear me? <laughs> can't believe we missed that in 3D. I'm so mad. Ah. 
so Daisy comes in and asks what it is because O'Brien, like, like this is the other thing. When Daisy pulled down the Ouija board, O'Brien saw it. And she was just like, never mind. You give that to me. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's a Ouija. Come on. Shut up. Ouija boards are for everyone, <laughs> especially simple-minded girls. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, but anyway, O'Brien finally explains that it's a way to talk to dead spirits. And then Mrs. Hughes comes in to spoil everyone's fun with the planchette, which she says is an unsuitable way to be spending their time on Christmas night, which, have you not read A Christmas Carol? Because this is the perfect night to be trying to commune with the dead. <laughs> no. Uh, so she says she's surprised at Daisy. Right. Even though Daisy wasn't do like, she had just walked in. <laughs> yeah. And Daisy says, oh, don't you believe in spirits? And Mrs. Hughes says, well, I don't believe they play board games. Which is pretty fantastic and also yeah. sums up this podcast's official position on the subject <laughs> of, you know, undead spirits and Ouija boards. Anything at this point put out by Milton Bradley, you've got to think ghosts have a little bit more self-respect. Like, this was probably at least handmade. Yeah. You know? Upstairs, in a room we don't recognize, Mary is taking her turn at charades and getting all bitchy about it, which I love. <laughs> Uh, she says, of course I'm reading, and it's, you know, and, and somebody gives her grief for talking, and she's like, oh, but honestly, and I, I just really enjoy it. Lord Grantham totally did agree with her, even though he was chiding her. Uh, yeah. He was like, yeah, 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 no one likes Edith. Still! <laughs> Sir Richard asks the Dowager Countess if they always play charades on Christmas night, and she says, this isn't charades, it's the game. I never got to the bottom of that. That right. didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> The Empire was built on the game. <laughs> or isn't it, wasn't that like a movie with Michael Douglas in it or something and that bear? <laughs> uh, yes. If you know what I'm talking about, I think Gwyneth Paltrow was in it. We have That's, the internet, but not right here. I, so. <laughs> I, I do know what you're talking about. No, wait, maybe that was The Edge with Anthony Hopkins and a bear. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We need a movie starting with the. Uh, an older actor and a bear. No, there was a movie called The Game. I promise there was a movie called The Game. There's okay. also a movie called The Edge. <laughs> there was definitely a movie called The Game. Anyway, so then uh, Sir Richard leans into the Dowager Countess and says, Do you enjoy these games in which the player must appear ridiculous? <laughs> and Maggie Smith says, Life is a game in which the player must appear ridiculous. And that's a pretty good, that's a good quip. Yeah. This is what I love about the interplay between the two of them, because they're both very sharp. Yeah. And it's just yeah. really fun to hear their sort of verbal uh, calisthenics when they're together. Yeah. But anyway, Isabel finally guesses that Mary was acting out the book The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. And then it's Sir Richard's turn. Oh, boy. And uh, I'm sure he's going to suck. <laughs> One would think. Uh, that brings us to one of our favorite recurring segments in which our very own happy elf kelly will tell us a little bit about the customs of the time in a segment that we call fashion backwards all right this was actually the easiest fashion backwards i've ever had to do uh usually it's like pulling teeth to find out some of this stuff but we're just going to talk about the celebration of christmas in this time period and the celebration of Christmas in the way that we sort of think of it today was actually popularized in England by Prince Albert, who spent much of his time in a can, uh, <laughs> but was primarily Queen Victoria's husband. And the press and popular authors such as Charles Dickens also encouraged the practice. Mm -hmm. So around the time that you had A Christmas Carol being published, it was a very new thing to sort of go all out and have this big year-end celebration. Uh, things had been more sedate prior to that, okay. not counting the pagans. <laughs> who I'm sure 
wrapped garlands around Stonehenge every year. <laughs> now, by the Edwardian period, customs of sending cars and singing carols, either in the home or door-to-door, were very well established. So a lot of that stuff kind of came out of the, the Victorian era, but it was very much normalized at that mm-hmm. point. I and mean, we really haven't written that many new Christmas songs <laughs> since that time period. Between 1900 and 1920, Christmas became much more commercialized. People were spending far more money on gifts for children and elaborate Christmas trees and other decorations. I did see, though, in another source that even in wealthy homes, children and presumably adults would only receive one gift. Hmm. Uh, So, I mean, it would just be the difference between, you know, I think the quality of that one gift. Mm -hmm. More wealthy children would be getting uh, teddy bears, which had just become popularized because of teddy roosevelt yeah and you know dolls dollhouses things of that nature yeah whereas less less wealthy children would be receiving handmade gifts you know uh handkerchiefs a sock yeah just things (laughs) things that i'm sure they appreciated since they didn't have very good heating but (laughs) things that are not as exciting Christmas trees started out as small trees on pots in tabletops where you would display your gifts uh, unwrapped. But eventually, the large fur displayed prominently in the home became the norm. Ornaments were handmade in most homes, and trees were lit with candles and special holders that clamped to the branches. But obviously, the wealthier families were able to buy glass ornaments and electric lights for their trees. You can see uh, in the opening sequences of this episode, they've clearly got electric lights. Right, and this right. is... This is 1919, almost 1920, so we're well into the sort of electronic revolution at yeah. this point. Now, the very best glass ornaments came from the village of Lausche in southern Germany, and elaborate paper ornaments came from Dresden. Hmm. But World War I caused a backlash against all German products, right. and that opened the door for, in the later 20s, the Czech Republic and Japan to break the German monopoly on ornament exports. Hmm. So both the Czech Republic and Japan were huge, huge uh, manufacturers of ornaments in the uh, post-World War I era. Huh. Children were often encouraged to dress up and perform skits, and as a special treat, they would be allowed to tell scary stories in the dark. And actually, you hear that in uh, the Christmas song, uh, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, they say, and scary ghost stories with tales of the glories of oh. Christmases long, long ago, yeah. which is fantastic. Andy Williams has the best version of that song, by the way. I know you're all planning for Christmas right now, <laughs> as I am. Pantomimes and cheaper music halls would offer seasonal programs around Christmas time, and in fact, J.M. Barry's classic Peter Pan was first performed at Christmas time in 1904. Hmm. And uh, the theaters would be closed on Christmas Day, but it was very common for people on Boxing Day, December 26th, which we don't really celebrate here in America, but is celebrated in Canada mm-hmm. and, of course, in Britain. That was a very big day for going to the theater. There would frequently be a lot of pageants and pantomimes on that day. Parlor games were also very popular. Charades, as we just saw on the show. Uh, Blind Man's Buff and Dumb Crambo, which I forgot to look up. Yeah. Uh, but Dumb Crambo sounds... It sounds like another sort of pantomiming game. Yeah. Uh, if dumb means right. can't speak. Right. There were also grown-up kissing games called Postman's Knock, Shy Widow, and Queen of Sheba. Oh, my. And I don't know about Postman's Knock and Shy Widow, but for Queen of Sheba, a woman would be seated on a chair... And then a man would be blindfolded and spun around, and he would have to try to find her and kiss her. Goodness. It's quite grown up. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then there's also this very dangerous-sounding game called Snapdragon. And that involved soaking raisins in brandy, setting them on fire, and then snatching them away from the flames. 
which I don't really understand because if it's been soaked in brandy, like that, that sucker's just going to keep burning. Right. Brandy is very flammable. True. I mean, I will say that alcohol burns at a relatively low temperature, so it's much. You know, you know that it's on fire, but it's a much cooler fire than most. That's true, but I still don't see. It, it's just it may just be a bad description. Yeah, of, you know, snatching right. it from the, the yeah, flames. That part is, I'm like, yeah. but it's on fire. Like you can't take fire away from the flaming thing. I, I don't know. The Christmas season was also a very popular time for marriages and lavish balls. Not too different from contemporary times. The Christmas wedding is still a very popular theme, mm. and you know, people always have big parties this time of year. And the well-off frequently would provide hampers of food to the less fortunate, a custom that is alive and well today, you know, with food drives and, you know, clothing drives, gift drives, right, that right. kind of stuff. And now I have a sample menu uh, for a Christmas dinner in the period. First, there would be a soup course, perhaps a pheasant, oysters, or chestnuts, followed by a main course of roast goose or perhaps a turkey. Geese were stuffed with apple, chestnut, and sausage forcemeat and served with apple or gooseberry sauce. The giblets were stewed in the fat saved for preserving cold meats and roasting potatoes. Leftovers from the roast turkey were made into croquettes or served cold with mashed potatoes the following day. The traditional plum pudding, which would have been made weeks before for the flavors to mature, and that would be served with brandy butter and, as we saw, flaming. Right. Other desserts such as Stars of Bethlehem and Yule Pastries, an Edwardian version of modern-day Christmas mince pies, would be served. And then beverages might include mulled ale and mulled wine, as well as red wines and champagne, followed by brandy and port for the gentlemen. Yeah. And uh, I pulled most of this information from an article called Christmas Traditions in the Edwardian Era by Wendy Craig, and also a website that is it was called thisisthenortheast.uk.co. But that had tips on how to like have your own... Edwardian oh. Christmas soiree. Well, all right. Uh, so, yeah. So that is the basics of the Edwardian Christmas traditions. You know, pretty low-key. The night generally would end with singing carols. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, everything would go to bed. And then, uh, obviously, some people went to church. We don't see that happening here. Right. But I did see that in London, at least, a lot of the local uh, transportation would shut down for everyone to go to church. Hmm. And then travels could be resumed after services had completed. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and actually, Evangeline Holland has a really good, Just it's just a reprint of the sky's reflections. It's just called, you know, Christmas in London during the Edwardian period. But it's a very well-detailed sort of picture. Uh, and we're in the country, but... Right, right. So I didn't pull from it too much. But it was really cool. Okay. So I recommend checking that out. Just You can just search Christmas on Edwardian Promenade, and you'll get a lot of other interesting information as well. Okay. Well, thank you, Kelly. You're welcome. We now see a... Dank yet spacious jail cell. As it opens, we hear the sounds of screaming in the distance, and we see Bates, who is presumably thinking to himself, Why did they build this jail next to a Halloween store? It's just very <laughs> distracting. Yeah, he's doing a really good Jean Valjean impersonation, I think. <laughs> You're right. I'm ready for him to be like, Look down, look down. And <laughs> My notes just say, Boo, let him fry. <laughs> Right. So that's where I stand. <laughs> uh, this, <laughs> I, I believe you would be disqualified from his jury. Uh, good, because I would probably be unable to restrain myself, climb out of the jury box, and punch him in the face. Right. Also, you're a woman. Well, that's also yeah. a good point. 
In Lord Grantham's dressing room, Carson asks Lord Grantham what to do if Bates doesn't come back, and Lord Grantham is like, "How could you even say such a thing?" And I'm like, "Well, he is on trial for murder. Mm-hmm. People don't just bounce back from that, dude." <laughs> but Carson suggests that Thomas is very keen to be promoted, and Lord Grantham says that he can't trust Thomas, and getting dressed is a very intimate affair. And so then Carson just says, oh, well, I'm sure Bates will be home soon. I'm like, no, you're not. That's why you brought this up. <laughs> right. But what are you going to do? The man pays your salary and your room and board. Yeah. He Let him want- have his delusions. Yeah, he don't want to hear it. Downstairs, <laughs> Rosamond's identical twin slash maid. She looks exactly like Rosamond. She does. Like, there have been so many scenes in this episode where I'm like, whoa, what's Rosamond doing downstairs? Or who let that maid in the ballroom? Yeah. And she's got like creepy eyes yeah like she looks like she's been enchanted she looks like missy pile if you know who missy yeah Pyle is. yeah you're right uh-huh. and i also wondered is she from yorkshire because and i mean i'm no expert on regional accents but she does sound like she talks she like does the other sound servants. like she's from the north right which you would think if this is rosamond that rosamond would have gotten this made in london i would have thought that but it's also possible that she doesn't trust the references of her friends in london yeah or that maggie smith may have pulled some strings yeah and gotten you know a hometown girl but nobody else seems to know her right so she's not from their their part of the north that's for sure yeah in any case, whatever her deal is, she is talking to Daisy and asking if she uh, made all these foods that she's apparently made off screen. We never see what they are, and I'm hungry, and I want to <laughs> see them. Right. But Daisy did, and Rosman's maid tells her that she could be a sous chef in London. Daisy does not know what a sous chef is. What's a sous chef? <laughs> yes. But, yeah, or a cook that, that uh, anybody would snap her up not at downton's level but she wouldn't have to go much farther yeah, down a smaller house but yeah. not by much yeah and daisy is baffled at this idea that well because she asks her if she's just a kitchen maid and daisy says i don't know what i am and i'm like somebody should tell you right like you really ought to know what you are yeah because you're not a mystery servant <laughs> right you're a real person yeah and then mrs patmore comes in <laughs> right Telling her to, to cook something, so, so souffle, and the nameless servant of Rosamond is like, oh, Daisy cooks the souffles too? And Mrs. Patmore is like, shut up, get out of here, I hate you. Um, As Mrs. P always does. Right. She does not take questioning well in her own kitchen. She doesn't really take anything well. Yeah, that's true. To be perfectly honest. At the dower house, Edith looks out the window to see a car pulling up and squeaks, What do you mean you've invited Antony Strallen? Because apparently the Dowager Countess has invited Antony Strallen to tea, unbeknownst to Edith. The Dowager Countess makes fun of his chauffeur because uh, he never used a chauffeur before. Ah. So she thinks that he's getting a bit high and mighty, despite that, like, well... Well, you know, maybe he's got a daughter that he's getting married to. I don't know. <laughs> but he comes in and is awkwardly surprised by Edith, as all right-thinking people would be. <laughs> and Edith is so glad to see him. And she says, it's, you know, so few of their friends have come through unscathed, meaning the war. But unfortunately, he's not been unscathed. He has a useless arm. Uh, he took a bullet in the wrong place. Yeah. And I'm curious why he was fighting in the war, because he's as old as Lord Grantham. Right. And in... Not as good circumstances, but I mean, they were personal. He and his wife were personal friends with the Kaiser. Right. Maybe he was fighting for the Kaiser. (laughs) That, I I wish that that was true because I would like to hear all about that story. I would too. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so his his right arm is now non-functional, which would also explain the chauffeur. Yes. 
he asks after Lady Sybil and her wedding, and the Dowager Countess tries to play it off, saying, oh, the family was too ill to attend. It was a small wedding in Dublin. They didn't want a big affair. And he asks, you know, what, what, what he's like. And... The dowager kind of says, oh, he's political. Yeah. And he says, oh, well, as long as he's on the right side, which would be especially <laughs> funny had he fought for the Kaiser. <laughs> and he asks if uh, Branson shoots. And Edith says, oh, I'm sure he does, but probably not pheasants. <laughs> it's like, you're right. He uh, shoots Northern Ireland, Ireland residents. Yes. And it, it's just all very awkward because Edith wants to tell him more, but the dowager countess is being very insistent that we not... And she's not even using any of that great stuff that she came up with at the end of the last episode. Right. About, you know, hitching him on to the Bransons in Cork. Well, and- you know, because if if Edith says that they didn't go to the wedding, well, then that has to... Then that throws the whole thing out the window if he's not respectable enough for them to go to That's the wedding. True. That's so true. She's, she's doing her best. But Edith and Sir Anthony do share a very cute look at the end of that scene where they're both like, why is she being so weird? Yeah. We see Anna entering a place with uh, blue lights and she is let through a barred door by a guard. My guess, she's on Hoth. <laughs> Here's hoping. It'd be much more interesting. You see, if Bates had a lightsaber... I'd care more about what happened to him. Yeah, and Anna could help him escape on a... What do they call it? Yeah, that thing. It's not a tom-tom. Tauntaun. Tauntaun. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, now we're talking. Naked burrow in its entrails for warmth <laughs> against the harsh Yorkshire winter. <laughs> That'd be great. However, instead, it's just a boring old jail. She sits across a table from Bates, along with a bunch of other people who are all prisoners. It's it's visiting time at the jail. Yeah, they they seem pretty confident nobody's passing files at this jail. Yeah. Everybody's all just out in the open. I mean, they're being surveilled, but... Right. Uh, you know, I watched Oz all <laughs> the seasons. You can sneak things into a prison, even it, under much more stringent conditions. Indeed you can. They're discussing the upcoming trial. Murray thinks that having a reference from an earl... Lord Grantham, presumably, will help. Anna agrees, but Bates is, you know, glum and convinced. Well, he says you have to be prepared for the worst to happen, which I would have enjoyed it if he had followed it up by, I might be let off and you'll be stuck with listening to me complain for the next 40 years. Um, but in fact, he thinks that the worst that could happen is that he'll be condemned to die. But Anna says, you know, shut your dirty mouth. She just tells him, hey, you know. She says that they'll deal with it when it comes. Right. And and that there's no reason for her to not be optimistic now. Yeah. Which I think is a very healthy attitude, Anna. Team Anna. That's right. Some of those guards looked pretty cute. I'm sure sure you could get this annulled (laughs) for reasons of murder. (laughs) Now it's New Year's Eve. OMG. Hooray. Lord Jinx Hepworth arrives. Oh, Jinxie. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. British nicknames. Like, British names are esoteric and weird, but British nicknames are the worst. Yeah. I'm always like, why do you hate all your friends? Uh, you know, I think you have to be British to understand All right. It. Fair I, enough. I just don't get it myself. Maybe they don't understand, like, Snoop Dogg, you know? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Or George W. Bush. <laughs> Anyway, so Jinxie arrives and Carson arranges for Thomas to look after old Jinx because uh, Jinx has not brought a manservant with him. Yes. In the long tradition of men coming to visit Downton and not bringing manservants. (laughs) So I'm not feeling very optimistic that this trip is going to work out for him. Yeah. He may well be dead. Yeah. Any moment. Or gay. (laughs) Or both. Mm Mm-hmm. 
In the library, Lord Grantham hands McGee a letter and asks what she thinks of Rosamond's pal, a.k.a. Jinxie. McGee thinks he's agreeable enough and then gasps. The letter is from Sybil and she is pregnant. OMG! And Lord Grantham is sad. He's like, well, there goes the last chance to get out of it. He's not even sad. He's a total jackass. Yeah. He's very dismissive and very contemptible. Yeah. And uh, here's my he says, oh, so we're to have a Fenian grandchild. Right. That is offensive, right? I, I'm not entirely certain because basically Fenian, kind of like the word Bolshevik, where it was originally just a description of a particular political group and then sort of became a generalized, more or less insulting thing. Mm-hmm. Like I know currently it's used as an insult against Catholics, like in Scotland – the two rival football teams are Celtics and Rangers, and one of them, I think Celtics, is generally associated with the Catholics, mm-hmm. and so the opposing fans will always call them Fenians. Okay. And so it's it's insulting today. In At this point, I don't know how insulting it was, but it's at least dismissive. Well, if soccer hooligans are using it, it's <laughs> pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> but McGee... Has a great line, which is that she says, come the revolution, it will be good to have a contact on the other side. Uh, which is something good that you should always consider. Yes. Jinx runs into Rosamond in the hallway and says it's cozy that their rooms are next to one another, which to me is weird because he should be in the bachelor's corridor. There's a whole corridor dedicated to bachelors. They may have, you know, changed things up. But it still seems highly inappropriate to me for an unmarried man and woman who have a proprietary interest in one another to be sleeping next next door. Absolutely. And I I don't know how that worked out because I can't see Carson or Mrs. Hughes allowing that. But Well, maybe it's the 1920s now. Or is it? Has that happened yet? Almost. It's New Year's Eve. Okay. Yeah. So... Anyway, I maybe it's just convenient. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Rosamond's maid comes up, and Rosamond reminds Jinx of her maid's name. It's Shore. Her ah, name is Shore. Miss okay. Shore. So now we know what her name is. Hooray. They have a little bit of up, upstairs, downstairs disconnect, because Jinxie's asking if they're having a little to-do downstairs, and Rosamond's maid, Shore, is like, what? Why? And he's like, <laughs> uh, it's New Year's Eve. And she's like, oh, yeah, whatever. I don't care. I don't live here. <laughs> And then Shore says if Lady Rosamond doesn't need anything else, she'll see her after midnight. And Jinx saucily says he wishes he could say the same. Oh! Ugh, he is not attractive. Yeah, but uh, they're right next door, apparently. Yuck. You could say, say the same. We then see Jinx talking to the Dowager Countess. He wonders if she remembers him, and she does. Says that he reminds her of his father, and they must have tea so that they can talk about him. And he says that they will if they'll release him from the shoot. And she says, oh, they'll release you. Yeah, and the shoot is very highly regimented. Like, there's a schedule. Mm-hmm. You need to be in certain places at certain times. And to attend someone's shoot and to not participate in the shoot would have been seen as an insult to the host. Mm. I learned much of this from the book The Shooting Party by Isabel Colgate, the movie version of which I put on the survey and ranked dead last at a staggering 0% of votes. <laughs> okay. To which I can only say, bravo to all of you, especially if you read the book, and we're like, this is stupid, and I hate it, and we don't want to hear any more about it. So good job. All right. Yeah. I do. I mean, 
every every time the Dowager Countess talks about Jinx's father, she's just like very kind of happy, and it's well, it sounds like they had a relationship. To yeah, me. yeah. Well, and, and he knew her in the eighteen sixties. Mm-hmm. So this is nineteen twenty, right? So sixty years yeah. ago. So I mean, her youth. Yeah, like probably as like a teenager, she knew his dad. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean. I don't know. I you know I have no idea how old the Dowager Countess is actually supposed right, to be. Right, right. But probably you know it would have been her teens or at the very latest. I think early twenties. Yeah, she's about to be a great grandmother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although she doesn't know because Sybil's letter said not to tell anyone, even the girls. Right. So, just it's top secret. Mm-hmm. Secret agent Fenian. <laughs> secret agent Fenian. Downstairs, uh, Daisy informs Shore that they are all allowed a glass of wine at midnight on New Year's Eve, and Shore mentions that at her last place they were expected to be serving upstairs no matter if it was New Year's Eve. Daisy asks if she wasn't a lady's maid then, because a lady's maid would not have been expected to serve in right, the dining right. room um, unless she's Anna and is kind of doing double duty mm-hmm. and there aren't any dudes around. And then Mrs. Patmore asks how long Shore's been with Rosamond, and Shore says she's been with her two months which Mrs. Patmore responds to with, oh, you're quite a new girl then, eh? Which seems to unsettle Shore. Yeah. But it's hard to say there's, because... There's a weird, like, subtext going on here that's not very clear Well, I think Mrs. Me. Patmore is, is keyed into the fact that Shore's kind of filling Daisy's head with, like, notions. Mm. And, yeah. a, you know, a proper lady's maid wouldn't probably be doing that. Yeah, that makes sense. Thomas is chatting with O'Brien, and he says that he can see that Lord Grantham doesn't trust him. Because he's not been promoted to, to valet for him. And O'Brien tells him that, she, that he has to earn his trust. And that in order to do that, he should hide something Lord Grantham loves, i.e. steal it, find it, and then give it back. Which was essentially what happened with Bates in that snuff box. Right. Only Bates didn't initially make it go missing. Yeah. And then Thomas spots Isis lurking, lurking in a hallway. <laughs> and the wheels started turning. It's like, of course. A scheme. <laughs> oh, my troubles are over now. <sighs> How's that blighty working out for you, Thomas? <laughs> no, and it's like, I mean, and it was really O'Brien, like, didn't even think about it. She was just trying to shut him up. Yeah. She was like, uh, th- here's an idea. Go away. I think away. O'Brien's over, Thomas. Yeah. I don't think it's coming through, but I think she's about had it with him. I agreed. Upstairs, Edith tells Rosmond about Anthony Stralin's arm. That being the reason for him not shooting and then walks away. Uh, the Dowager Countess tells Rosamond that she is sorry that she started them up again, trying to set up Edith and Antony, and that Rosamond shouldn't encourage Edith. Yes, because she doesn't want Edith to be a nursemaid for the rest of her life. Yes. Well, it seems likely regardless of whether she marries Antony Strallen, given that she's probably the one that will be caring for her parents in their old age. So. <laughs> right. Sir Richard is whining once again because the servants are downstairs and they're on their own. And another thing. Why don't you beat your servants? <laughs> we'll be beating them daily at Haxby. Mary says it doesn't seem much to her for the servants to have two days a year where they get to not be slaves, essentially. <laughs> but Sir Richard says it does if you've had to fight for everything you've got. And Mary says, oh, do try to get past that. It makes you sound so angry all the time. Which, here, here. Yeah. Like, I get the whole up by your bootstraps thing. Yeah. But, like, come on, dude. Like, just because you used to not be in this position, like, have some compassion for your fellow former working class stiffs. You know, he didn't get where he is through compassion. That is a fair point. Yeah. Mary is talking to Matthew. She says she hopes that London wasn't too grim. He says that he got there in time to be with Mr. Swire when he died so that he wasn't alone. And then it's midnight, 
and it is uh super anticlimactic. Yeah. They're just like, Oh, oh, it's midnight and they're all like, Hurrah Yeah. It's uh Like who was the Dick Clark of post Edwardian England? Like where's that guy? Dickie Clarkson. <laughs> <laughs> where's that chair for Charlie's guy? They're gonna run him <laughs> in for a night. <laughs> It's true. And this is another hit from the flop show, Zip Goes a Million! <laughs> Here on British Photograph Stand! <laughs> the Dowager Countess wonders at everything that's happened over the last ten years, and she says, who knows what we're in for now? Well, luckily for her, it's most likely the sweet embrace of death. <laughs> that and jazz. <laughs> yeah, Daddy, jazz! <laughs> In the hallway up near the bedrooms, Anna sees Shore and Jinxie chatting across the <laughs> hall from her. Then she passes by Shore, which I'm not sure how that works, because it's that section of the hall where the great hall is in between, and then there's the two hallways flanking it on either right, side. Right, right. And she sees them across the way, and then she comes at them from an angle that doesn't make sense. So way to go, editor. <laughs> but she passes Shore, who comes up to Anna and says that uh, Jinxie's gotten a bit ahead of himself. He tells her that... She that Jinxie wants Shore to speak up for him to Lady Rosamond, as in like courting wise. Right, right. Anna counsels her to keep out of it because she once helped her mistress carry a dead body, and it's caused her no end of trouble. <laughs> Indeed. But Anna always counsels keeping out of it. Whatever it is, Anna stays out of it. Yeah. We now see the shooters assembling, and they're uh, having a, a little dispute with each other over who will stand with them when they shoot. Apparently, there are only three women attending this shoot. Uh, We're not clear who they are. Right, because it's Mary and... I don't know who else. I thought we identified one of the other I two. I thought we did too, but I can't remember who it was. In any case, so there's a dispute over whether Mary will be standing with Sir Richard Carlyle or uh, not, or Matthew. And... Matthew sort of seizes her for himself. He says, oh, you were going to stand with me for the first drive. Isn't that what you said the other day? And Mary's like, no, I didn't. Oh, wait. Yes, I did. And Mary's the worst at this game. <laughs> yeah. So that's settled. And, <laughs> of course, this doesn't bother Richard Carlyle. Nope, all. not at all. He will never say anything bad about Matthew again. <laughs> then we get a bunch of idyllic shots of dogs and beaters driving the game from the brush. The other thing I learned from the shooting party is that these are completely manufactured shoots. Mm-hmm. These are not like going out and hunting. Mm-hmm. This is, oh, well, uh, in order to make sure everybody gets to have a, a turn, basically, they get hundreds of pheasants and set them loose in a certain area. I believe they call it a stand. Mm-hmm. No, drive. Okay. In an area, you know, they have the area kind of sectioned off into different drives. The gamekeeper will put the game there you know, in the drive. Right. And then the beaters are, you know, some poor slobs that they pay, you know, a pittance to to come through and, and rattle all the bushes with sticks so that the uh, pheasants all fly upwards so that the gentlemen can shoot at them. Yeah. And and what I learned from this, as well as from Gosford Park, is that nothing gives Julian Fellows a boner like a pheasant shoot. Oh, my God. Like he loves them. These are the most lovingly handcrafted shots of the whole series. Yeah. <laughs> He must think that the book Danny the Champion of the World is a tragedy. <laughs> Mary uh, is standing with Matthew at the drive, and, he a- and she asks why he doesn't have a loader. A loader would be a man who would also be standing there loading the gun. Right. 
so that, you know, the gentleman wouldn't have to dirty his hands for such a plebeian enterprise as loading the gun he's about to shoot. Yeah. In case you can't tell, I'm taking a very socialist approach <laughs> to the idea of uh, game shooting. No. But Matthew says uh, it's because he's bad at shooting and he didn't want to witness. And Mary says, oh, you know, she's there. And he says, oh, well, you know, you're not going to tell anybody. Yeah. She thanks him for saving her from Sir Richard, who's beginning to get on her nerves. And Matthew asks if she's still going to marry him. And Mary's like, of course I'm going to marry him. Right. Like what? People get on each other's nerves all the time. Mm-hmm. Then Matthew thinks perhaps he has shot a pheasant and tells Mary to lie to everyone about how well he did when, when asked. Uh, then we get a shot of Sir Richard looking suspiciously at them as they laugh and laugh. Yeah. Downstairs, Mrs. Hughes tells Daisy that she's got a visitor and brings in Mr. Mason. And he starts blabbing on about William's grave and he wanted to take his blessing to Daisy or whatnot. Mrs. Patmore says that he should wait in the servants' hall until they finish sending out the shooting lunch. No Mrs. Hughes's parlor for this guy. Yeah. Although I think that probably has more to do with who Daisy is than who he is. Well, and also I don't think Mrs. Patmore could invite somebody into Mrs. Hughes's yeah, parlor. Yeah, but Mrs. Hughes was right there. Oh, that's right. And didn't volunteer. Well... Fair enough. Uh, in any case, the servants' hall will be fine for Mr. Mason. And then Daisy will bring him a cup of tea. Farmers do have simple tastes, as we saw with uh, old Farmer Drake. <laughs> That's right. And Daisy is, of course, worried and fretful about this situation, as she always has been. She says that she plans to make things clear. Mrs. Patmore says n- not to. It's the same debate they've been having. And, and Daisy says something along the lines of, you know, William wouldn't thank me for bamboozling him. And I'm like, uh, he might. He was pretty dumb. He might not know what bamboozling means. That's a good point. (laughs) We cut to an exterior of a building, and Edith is not on the shoot, as we had previously thought. This is where it came in, because there's three women besides Mary, but we're not sure who the other two are. Right. I think one might be Isabel, but she would be standing with Matthew. Yeah. But uh, anyway... Edith has driven over to Anthony Strallens to invite him to go for a drive the way they used to. And he says he can't, he he doesn't have the time. And so then he offers her a cup of tea, and she sits down, and he is inquiring after her family. Then he says he's glad to have her alone to make it clear that they can't be together. There's no way. And she's worried that it's because of what Mary said the day the war broke out. And he says, no, it's not because of that. Uh, It's because he is too old and crippled for her. And that she ought to give up, but she refuses because he's called her lovely. And it's actually, it's a really nice scene for Edith. because She says, if you think I'm going to give up on someone who calls me lovely, yeah, which is really nice. So yeah. I have to say, I'm, I'm rooting for these crazy kids. I, I think Edith deserves a little happiness despite the uh, poor handling of her character by Julian Fellows. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'd really rather see somebody a notch better for Edith. Okay, if possible. fair enough. But... I don't know. He's, I seem to have a weird soft spot in my heart for old Anthony Strallen. He's, I mean, he's a plenty nice guy. She, I guess it's just in comparison with fake Patrick. <laughs> right. I'm like, hey, yeah. this guy isn't pretending to be Canadian or not <laughs> pretending to be Canadian. What's going on? I'm really confused. Right. In the servants' hall, Daisy pours tea for Mr. Mason, as it was foretold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, By the Ouija board. <laughs> that's right. And he again invites her to the farm saying that, you know, he wants her to see where William grew up and that he wanted to work with animals, with horses in particular, as you would know, unless you watched the American version of Downton Abbey. It's true. They cut it out. Yeah. Spoilers. (laughs) But his mother saw him lording it over a great house as a butler. And uh, Mr. Mason also says that he's just glad that William's mother didn't live to see him die. And Daisy says that she would have had to face it, wouldn't she, that we all have to face the truth. 
and sort of launches into the speech that she's clearly been working on about... It's her Dear Mr. Mason letter. <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Patmore, by the way, has started eavesdropping at this point, that she didn't love William right away. You know, they were friends for a long time, and then he loved her, but she didn't love him right away. And Mr. Mason kind of just interrupts her and says, that's all great. It's terrible because he's so earnest. Yeah. And it's like, and he's so, I mean, you can see where William inherited his stupidity from. <laughs> right. Because Mr. Mason is just so, I mean, you know, he's still, I'm sure, in the throes of grief. Yeah. It hasn't been that long. And I mean, he's lost both his wife and his son in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got nobody else kind of to talk to. Right. So he would be very interested in maintaining even if even if on some level he's conscious that it was an illusion, mm-hmm. he's very committed to like maintaining right, right. this this fantasy that he's laid out for himself. Yeah. Daisy winds up not really coming out with it and she says she will let him know when she will come to see the farm. Which as everyone who's tried to put off seeing a friend they don't want to see is code <laughs> for I'm never coming to your stupid farm. <laughs> right. Back out of the shoot, Sir Richard wants to know where his damn loader is. And uh, Mary is with him, and he wants to know what she was laughing about with Matthew. Because I'm sure it was about you. Yeah. He wants to know if he's ever to be free of Matthew, and thinks that Mary prefers Matthew's company to his, which everyone prefers Matthew's company to you. Like, yeah, like even it. when he was paralyzed, no <laughs> one wanted to hang out with you over him. Right. But, you know, and Mary's saying, oh, you know, they'll, they'll never be rid of Matthew. You know how families like ours work. Mm-hmm. And they start arguing very loudly about all this. And uh, Matthew comes over and makes it worse by asking if everything's all right. And Mary tries to smooth everything over and say that Sir Richard was just upset about his loader not being there. It's one of the best drives and he's missing all the fun. <laughs> I would venture to say he's missing all the fun because he's a giant turd. <laughs> that is a believable theory. <laughs> At the, the the luncheon house, there's on an estate like this that would have a a shoot. They always had a a special house where they would have lunch during the shoot. Okay, uh, so they wouldn't have to be roughing it with an outdoor picnic. Okay, well, it looked like to me like it was kind of outdoors. Like they looked to me like they were on more of a patio type thing. I but thought they they generally I, are in things that were converted barns. So okay. there's you know they I thought they just had a lot of windows open or something. Oh, that would make if but it if was like it a was, barn. Then they was, would have the doors open yeah, that, at either end. Okay, yeah, that, so it still gives the illusion of being outdoors yeah. without actually having to dirty oneself. Right, but that's where they are. And Isabel asks Lord Grantham, so Isabel is there if she can accompany Matthew to Bates's trial as part of the bucking up brigade. Carson asks nobody can make the bucking like who says the bucking up brigade that's not like the most annoying thing ever yeah Carson asks if they're going to have time to serve the coffee and Thomas snarks that they could have used a maid to help them serve this lunch then they would have time to serve the coffee right but Carson says that having a maid at a shooting lunch is ridiculous war's over Thomas Carson's back in his element all dudes all the time (laughs) The cheerful Charlie's all over again. <laughs> At the Dower House, the Dowager Countess is visiting with old Jinxie. She <laughs> wants to know why Jinxie never visits his various family homes anymore, of which there were three or four. Like, his family was loaded. Yeah, and he, she had actually asked this earlier, asked about Hepford, I think it was called. Hepworth House, because his name yeah. is Hepworth. Yeah. But it turns out he's broke, and he wants Rosamond's money to bail him out. Nope, they do. 
he tries to tell the Dowager Countess that there are many varieties of happy marriages, but the Dowager Countess says that they are all based on honesty and that he needs to come clean to Rosamond about the reasons he's courting her, and then it's up to Rosamond. Yeah. He's, uh, yeah. Jinxie he, does not look thrilled by this development. Indeed. He says that his feelings for her are sincere, and they do seem to be, you know, pretty compatible in uh, that they sense. they got rooms next to each other, yeah. so... After dinner, back at Downton Abbey... Wow, we've skipped a lot of time here. Yeah. But we see a bunch of well-heeled biddies going through after dinner, and Jinx asks Rosamond, one of the well-heeled biddies, if he can steal She's her for a moment. She's not that much of a biddy yet. These ladies <laughs> all had gray hair. Fair enough. A biddy in training. <laughs> Meanwhile, Sir Richard is insisting to Mary that she set a date for their wedding. She says, spring or summer, and he gets a little grabby. like Arm grabbing is his go-to move. That's right. And he busts it out again, saying that even his patience has its limits. His famous patience that we've seen exhibited so often. <laughs> Matthew and Lord Grantham have a little meaningful look, because they see all this going on. And then uh, Matthew heads out to say sir richard is pretty bold yeah like you know if you or any suitor of mine had ever treated me so disrespectfully in front of my parents my parents would have like beat the tar out of him right i mean that's how we roll in southwestern ohio (laughs) yes but i mean just you know i mean i think it's we we forget how much things have changed that's true well the example that always strikes me is that there's an episode of i love lucy where she goes out and gets a sunburn because she thinks it'll dissuade her husband from hitting her yeah which is just like oh you know because that was the 50s yeah so yeah so i guess that's true yeah uh it's probably amazing that we aren't seeing sir richard doing some of that this may be a very sanitized version of the original sir richard as planned on paper i think that may well be true Anyway, Matthew catches up with Mary in the hallway and asks if he can help, and she says that she won't insult him after this afternoon, uh, the encounter with Sir Richard, by saying she doesn't know what he means, and he tells her that she doesn't have to marry Carlisle, but she says she does, and he insists that she would have a home at Downton uh, as long as he lives, Right. and she says, oh, you know, Matthew didn't the word teach you anything, never promise anyone anything, which is a pretty fair point. Yeah. He wants to know why she has to marry Carlisle, and she says that he would despise her if she told him. McGee's, uh, McGee's sense is tingling. <laughs> uh, she, she senses that the, the spirit of Pamuk is raising up from the grave <laughs> once again. So she calls Marion because Rosamond wants to play bridge until the men come through, and then uh, McGee eyes Matthew warily from the doorway. <laughs> Yes. Although I'm not sure where her loyalties lie at this point, because before her whole thing was she wanted Mary to have grandchildren. Right. And that was pretty much her motivating mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even, you know, she may not even be sure what That's she wants true. at this point. Her brain may be made of pudding. Yeah. And uh, observe again that, like, virtually every scene with Mary and Matthew, very good. Oh, very well so done. good. Yeah. I wish I was engaged to an abusive asshole just so you could come and reenact that scene with me. I uh, will make some arrangements. <laughs> Thanks, baby. <laughs> Downstairs, the servants have busted out the old planchette again. Well, it's only, you know, after New Year's now. It's perfectly acceptable. That's right. We're in the middle of a session. Thomas pushes the uh, pointer towards F-A-T. Too fat. Yes. And informs Mrs. Patmore that Archie said that she is too fat. Mm-hmm. Which Mrs. Patmore suspects some foul play on the planchette <laughs> board there. And tells Daisy to come along and, and do some work. At which point, Shore, who has been hanging out there reading a book entitled How to Be Unsettling, 
says that she hopes that it is rewarding work, something to challenge Daisy. Daisy tells her to, oh, leave it alone. And Mrs. Patmore wants to know what she meant. And everything remains unsaid. Yeah. And, uh, like, shut up. Sure. <laughs> like, God, like, she's a kitchen maid, for God's sake. Right. Well, and like, she is trying to better Daisy's life, but she's just so creepy and weird. And that, condescending, uh, too. Yeah. It's like, look, she just found out that this was an option. Like, <laughs> right. give her a rest for a day or two. Or maybe she has, and we're just seeing the days on which that she has said something. Yeah, yeah. Lord Grantham comes into the parlor where McGee is alone. Uh, presumably everyone else has gone to bed. And he's just had a telephone call from Murray, who is coming to Downton to discuss the case with Mrs. Hughes, O'Brien, and Lord Grantham. This is the case against Mr. Bates. Right. The airtight case, <laughs> I hope. Uh, McGee wants to know if Murray will stay at Downton, but uh, apparently Murray's anxious to get to York where the uh, trial is being held. McGee hopes she can, that Lord Grantham can be strong if it goes against Bates, which I doubt. I think he's going to be a big baby, <laughs> like he is about everything. Yes. Lord Grantham, in true to character, continues to delude himself into thinking that everything's going to be fine. He then asks if McGee noticed the scene between Carlisle and Mary after dinner. And McGee says she's sure Mary has him under control. But Lord Grantham says all he can see is a tired woman with a tiresome husband. And he wants to know why she still goes on with it. Is there some element I might have overlooked? (laughs) Suddenly, everything pops out from the walls. Ding, 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 ding. Groucho Marx comes out. Yeah, you said the sacred wine. Actually, it's just McGee wearing funny glasses and a cigar. Uh, Yeah. You said the secret word. In the country. <laughs> so anyway, he insists that she tell him if she knows something. And she says, perhaps it's time. So he sits down and says he hoped he was wrong. She tells him he has to promise not to fly off the handle. Which, yeah, fat chance. <laughs> Hasn't the war taught you anything about making promises? <laughs> and she asks if he remembers the Turkish diplomat who stayed there before the war. He says he'd remember any guest who turned up dead in his bed the next morning. Then McGee says, well... That's the thing. And then we cut to an exterior shot of Downton. Right. So I was expecting the exterior shot, and then you just hear, No! And see another patch of, like, pheasants, like, flying (laughs) out. No, but again, this is really, to me, because this entire series has been built on nothing, if not Mary's issues with Mr. Pamuk. Right. So to deny us viewers the opportunity to see... McGee and Lord Grantham sussing this whole thing out. Yeah, and Lord Grantham's reaction. I'm upset. I mean, yeah. the whole reason they were keeping it a secret in the first place was to prevent Lord Grantham from having a heart attack and dying. Right. This is the moment that he is supposed to be killed, according to what was said earlier. We should only be so lucky. <laughs> Bates and Lord Grantham all in one fell swoop. Man. <laughs> then it would be Downton ladies all the time. Yep. Under Matthew's benevolent rule. <laughs> Murray is back. We finally get to see Murray again. Man, we love Murray. Yeah. He's so great. It's He's true. my spirit animal. <laughs> um, but he is explaining that O'Brien and Mrs. Hughes are called as prosecution witnesses. This baffles them. They're yes. confused as to why they would be prosecution witnesses. Right. Murray says he doesn't know. He isn't a lawyer. <laughs> well he's not he's not a solicitor or he is a solicitor, he is a solicitor. he's not a barrister right we'll yeah. get into all that later yeah yeah they also ask about anna and murray says that a wife cannot be compelled to testify against her husband good yes 
in the courthouse, uh, O'Brien is giving testimony that she overheard Bates talking on the phone to his lawyer, blaming his wife for canceling the divorce. She says that Bates had a scratch on his cheek when he came home from seeing Vera the last time and that he told Anna the meeting had been worse than she could possibly imagine. This is all intercut with various people in the gallery looking shocked. Shocked, I tell you. Yes. Even the judge, like every time they say something incriminating, like the extra they have playing the judge, <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> but silently. Yeah. Then Mrs. Hughes is on the stand and she is forced to admit that Bates called his wife a bitch. Which is very hard for Mrs. Hughes even to pronounce. Yeah. Which I thought was a nice touch. Yeah. And that he appeared to threaten to strike Vera when she was there to visit. And just in general, all the things she overheard. One question I had was how the prosecution got their hands on all this stuff. Right. Uh, like, had they been watching series two of Downton Abbey <laughs> along with the rest of us? Or, right. Well, but I, what we eventually decided was that Bates had probably, in his stupidity, yeah. revealed all of these incriminating details. Yeah. Cause, and I feel like I want to see the scene with Anna where, where she was like, look, I told you that you <laughs> should tell them about the rat poison because that's the murder weapon. <laughs> right. But there was no need for you to tell them all that other crap that happened before because nobody here was going to rat you out. Bates was probably like, oh, it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be honorable. Oh, I have to make sure that they know all the facts. Yeah. He probably made up some incriminating details. He just, probably did. It's like, I was concerned it wasn't fair. <laughs> Things seem to be going too well for me. <laughs> Poor Vera. <laughs> Out in the hallway, Murray reassures everybody that it always looks black as night when the prosecution is through with their side, uh, and that no one has spoken in Bates' defense yet. I beg to differ, for I've watched many episodes of Law & Order UK, and uh, Martha Jones and that other guy frequently don't do a very good job prosecuting. <laughs> That's true. Frequently. <laughs> and I can't believe that Mrs. Hughes would speak against Bates, but Isabel, as part of her bucking up, says that... Uh, it's very hard to lie under oath and that not many people can manage it. They should have had Edith come because she could have done bucking around with Edith Crawley. <laughs> it's, it's true. I think she and, yeah, she and, uh, she and Isabel could definitely do some bucking. Yeah. Between, they are the buckiest. Uh, agreed. Yeah. Absolutely. Well done, buckers. <laughs> Mary says that Mrs. Hughes looked like she was in hell. And on she the did. Stand. She yeah. was very concerned. Yeah. Anna says that she had begged Bates to tell the police about the poison. Murray actually agrees with her here. Right. He's like, yeah, it's too bad your husband's a stupid git. <laughs> yeah. He's much nicer than me. Yeah. And uh, Lord Grantham says that they'll just have to prove Bates' innocence through his character. So his fate is in the hands of Lord Grantham. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. Because <laughs> he's really good at uh, doing stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know. Sniffing out fake airs, maybe, moderately. <laughs> right. Otherwise, not so much. Yeah. We cut to Lord Grantham on the stand. He's actually standing, whereas the ladies were seated. And I don't know if that's an etiquette thing or if it's just Lord Grantham having hemorrhoids. But he says that he has no doubts whatsoever that Bates is innocent. And then the prosecutor gets Lord Grantham to cop to Bates wishing Vera were dead in that scene. In the previous episode where, where Bates says he wishes that it was the former or even better yet, the late Mrs. Bates. And like right. Lord Grantham apparently has no memory of this. Yeah. Uh, well, and that, I mean, that has to be, Bates is the only yeah, other one in that room. Exactly. So that's the only way they could have learned So that. again, Bates, 
for God's sake. Yeah. Like, did you not? The cops told you that you didn't have to say anything. We saw that. Yeah, but clearly you did. Yeah. So, but I think, again, it's all framed here in a way that I don't think is consistent. Agreed. Because in reality, I don't think, like, I don't understand what lawyer would, number one, allow Bates to give this testimony, not read it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it seems like you ought to be able to say some of this is inadmissible. Yeah, I don't know. But. Yeah. When it's never made clear if Bates' lawyer is the same, though, as Lord Grantham's lawyer. Mm. You know, like, was Murray and his, his barrister proxy handling this whole thing? Or does Bates have, like, the equivalent of, like, better call Saul on Breaking Bad handling this for him? He does He does have, Murray is his solicitor, and I will explain okay. how I know that. Fantastic. Out in the hall, Mrs. Hughes and Miss O'Brien are fretting over how, you know, they, the prosecution twisted their words and how, you know, they're just upset that they wound up giving evidence that made Bates right, look bad, right. which was not what they wanted to do. And O'Brien has a nice scene here because mm-hmm. she says Anna must be very bitter. Mm-hmm. Of course, she says it the way she says it, which is bitter, <laughs> yeah. which is great. And I just I just think, you know, it's nice to see because O'Brien really has grown, I think, almost in spite of Julian Fellows. Yeah. She's really changed as a human being. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think that's all down to her performance, mm-hmm. which is very subtle. Yeah. Well, I mean, because she says that Anna must think must be bitter, and she says it as in, and rightly so, yeah, yeah. rather than in a resentful way. Yeah. Oh, and she wants Isabel to apologize for them on their behalf, but then uh, Murray comes and calls them back in for the for the verdict. Mm-hmm. So then back in court, Bates is predictably found guilty and sentenced to death. I say predictably because this entire plot line is just, yeah, it's the worst kind of soap opera tomfoolery mm-hmm. where Julian Fellows is just dragging this out. And, and I understand, but I think it's really outdated to say that, you know, having a couple, you know, be in a stable position together is is anticlimactic. You just have to find other things. Like, right. couldn't they have been happy together and Anna just be mad about how self-effacing Bates is? Right. Or just, it's a big ensemble cast. Some people, like, you know... Some people have conflicts, some people don't. Yeah, like Lord Grantham and Gajee don't really have many conflicts. Yeah, I just mean... Just minor ones here and there. It's very tertiary for them. Well, yeah. I mean, they were concerned about the new heir, and, but I mean, but they got all chummy with Matthew immediately. Yeah, so, yeah anyway... Yeah. It's it's just, uh, we hate this plot line. We yes, just hate it. Absolutely. And I think, by the way, I think, you know, particularly earlier in the run when we would talk about how much we hated Bates and all that sort of thing, and I think people were more like, hey, I like Bates or whatever. Like, going through it the second time, knowing this whole plot line, like, I feel like I liked Bates much less from the beginning. Yeah. Because I, I knew I, how this all I turned out. I didn't like Bates when we watched it the first time, but going through the second time, like, it's just, ugh. Yeah. Well, because there's just, you know, it's very final. You're like, oh, there's no possibility that he's going to get any better for yeah. me. <laughs> for me personally, there's plenty of Bates lovers out there. Yeah, yeah. Carry on. I know you're very upset right now. Much like Anna, who starts screaming. She screams when they announce that he's been found guilty. Mm-hmm. And he is sentenced to be led from this place and to his death. Yeah. Which I know to mean immediately, but I don't think that's the case. It's not. Is that just a thing you say? That is the, just that's just sort of the formal okay. sentence of death. It's very confusing to 21st century people mm-hmm. who are watching it. Yes. Uh, but she, she's, you know, yelling that it's wrong, it's wrong, and they're leaving Bates out of court, and he says, Anna! And that is where the recap ends. Yes. At this emotional fever pitch. <laughs> right. And so that brings us to another of our recurring segments. No, we did not forget. <laughs> Here we have our resident legal eagle, Tom, with Tom Repeats History. Thank you. 
so yeah, I was trying to research as much as I could about sort of British criminal procedures at the time. And this was a tough one for me to figure out because... Yeah, we really switched roles here. Usually I'm the one that's like, what am I going to do? Yeah. And, you know, just because it's hard to tell, you know, it's easy to find information about how they work now, but then trying to figure out what the differences are, how it would have been at the time versus now and, and all yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, you have to go to your local library. Possibly. But In Ripon. <laughs> There's actually a Ripon not that far from us, oh. I learned. Uh, when I was looking up Ripon to see how close it was to York, there's uh, one that's right near Modesto. Oh, yeah. good so, to know. Uh, we, could, we could always head there for some reason. Um, but so this is just sort of a collection of things that I learned. And I already was reasonably familiar from reading the Rumpel of the Bailey books mm-hmm. and Law and Order UK for that matter. So, you know, one of the biggest differences that I think most people are aware of is uh, that in Britain, they have two types of lawyers. They have solicitors and barristers. Solicitors are, you know, sort of your attorney. They're the ones that you sort of talk to. Barristers are there specifically to be in court and and plead before judges and that sort of thing. Solicitors do kind of everything else. And the reason for this is the same reason for most things in Britain, which is that it seemed like a good idea in the 1200s. Does one of those have a particular social advantage? Is it more respectable to be a barrister versus a solicitor? I believe that there are fewer barristers. I believe that there there is somewhat higher class socially. Okay. Because barristers, uh, it goes back to you know basically the Middle Ages where any trade had to be part of a specific like guild and specifically they had what were called the inns of court were the organizations that barristers were you had to be a member of and that's still true today there are four inns of court that are lincoln's inn the middle temple the inner temple and gray's inn and all barristers are a member of one of those four and it's difficult i do not understand that okay. is what it comes down to. Like well, I think it, for this and for the rest of this segment, if you are British or yeah. have a very sophisticated understanding of British law, either then or now, we would love to hear some some explication on this yeah. because it's very foreign to us. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Literally. Yeah. But I did learn that barristers and sort of the term the bar, as in like the American Bar Association mm-hmm. or whatever, I had always assumed that that has to do with like the bar at the front of court uh, sort of separating the audience from the actual court. But that is not the case. It comes from these inns of court, which were originally basically law schools. And in the hall there, the students would sit in the back and the actual lawyers would sit in the front and there was a bar between them. So that was where, you know, passing the bar, you would move from the back of the inn of court to the front of ah. the inn of court. Yeah. So that was interesting to me. So, yeah, so that's why we see Murray doing all the discussion with the family and everything like that, but then it's some other lawyer that's actually questioning Lord uh-huh. Grantham. That's the barrister. And there are actually, there's two sort of types of barrister, even. There's a junior barrister, and then there's a queen's council, or as it would have been in this case, a king's council. Mm-hmm. And that is just sort of a, a slightly more advanced level. So is that for the prosecution, or is that for everybody? It's for everybody. It sort of originally started out as only for the prosecution, and you had to get a special license if you were the king's counsel to speak against the king. And the king is the other side of every criminal Uh case. So eventually they took away that requirement because KCs or QCs or silks, as they're often told, because you wear a silk robe when Uh you're king's counsel you know they were on the defense and they got sick of having to get the special license at the time yeah 
And so that's, I was trying to tell, I, I had it paused, I was trying to tell if that was the case in this trial, because I saw two barristers sitting, and Murray sitting behind them, which mm-hmm. is how I knew that he was the solicitor. Oh, because okay. the barristers sit at the table that's pretty much the same as the lawyer's table in an American courtroom, and then the solicitor sits right behind them. Okay. Yeah. The one other difference in the courtroom layout that you'll have noticed is that the defendant sits in a box by himself called yes. the dock with a security officer of some kind there. I kind of like that. I mean, I feel like it might kind of unfairly bias the jury against you. Yeah. But I don't know. I kind of like it. Well, I had that thought too, but then it occurred to me, if that's just every trial, then... Right. Exactly. Yeah. I just, I don't know. It just, I don't think I would want to sit next to my lawyer. (laughs) Fair enough. If I was tried for a crime. So then I, I tried to figure out what sort of the process would have been overall for Bates here. He would have been indicted by a grand jury, but that's actually, it turns out that that's commonplace in America, that every crime is first brought to a grand jury for indictment. Mm -hmm. But we're actually the only country in the world that still does that. Oh, Uh, Grand juries were abolished in Britain in 1933, I believe. Cases are just brought up by prosecutors. Okay. And that's it. But that would have still been the case at the time. And then here's the thing. I can't find any plausible justification at all for this to be held in York. The Old Bailey, or the Central Criminal Court, was its official title in London absolutely had jurisdiction over this. It was a murder committed in London, and there's just no way from anything that I've read for a case to be transferred away from there. Mm -hmm. There was a special act passed at one point in the 1850s or 60s, but that was specifically to allow transfer of cases from other courts to Mm -hmm. the Central Criminal Court if you felt you couldn't get a fair trial in your home county or or things like Mm -hmm. that, but not vice versa. And I don't see, there's no reason to think Bates couldn't have gotten a fair trial in, in well, the Old I Bailey. Well, I don't see, because that's the implication in that scene, because Lord Grantham is like glad, like he doesn't think that in London he would have gotten a fair trial somehow, but I don't see how he could have gotten, gotten a trial that was any more or less fair in York or in London. Right. I, don't I mean, s- he's kind of a lone wolf. Yeah. So that, I, I mean. Fellows. Yeah, You've exactly. got some explaining to do. Like they couldn't. You can't, like, Law and Order UK can film at the Old Bailey, but you can't. Like, and it's the well, same. Well, even if they couldn't film at the Old Bailey, it's not like we're going to know the difference, most of us. I yeah. mean, I guess, you know, they do produce it originally for Britain, but it's like, come on. Yeah. I mean, it, and it just, they're just, you know, like I said, there was no reason. This would have been, and this is where I'm having trouble, this would have been a court of assizes. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where I had trouble because court of assizes was the general court for these situations from 1200 through 1971. So trying to pin down what the exact procedure was at some point intermediate there was hard to do. Mm-hmm. But it was basically sort of a, a the judge would travel from town to town. There were all judges like basically based out of London that would then travel around the countryside to these right. Well, and that's how I mean that's how it used to be in in America as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that would have been the the sort of name of this court mm-hmm. and you know and purpose of it. And it would have so as I understand it, it would have just been at certain times of the year that court would have been the assizes would have been in session at any given point. Mm-hmm. But again, I see these things, and it's like, that was true in the 1800s. Was this still true then? I'm not sure. Right. And now that Bates has been found guilty, he can appeal, but that only became true in 1907. Oh, wow. Prior to 1907, if you were found guilty in a criminal trial, the only court of appeals, there was a court of appeals, but it took very few cases, and it would only argue points of law. 
you couldn't say that you know this evidence was tainted or mm-hmm. that there was any sort of other th- it was just like oh a legal error was made they could reconsider that that otherwise there just wasn't any appeal mm-hmm. and then there were a couple cases notably the case of George Adulji who was accused of being involved in the oh shoot I, I forgot the name of it the the Whirly outrages or something like that which was basically a case of somebody going around cutting up livestock yikes yeah uh, and this guy, George Adalji, was uh, convicted of it, and actually Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got involved. And I bet he did. He, he did, and proved that the guy was innocent, and that, al- along with a few other similar cases, finally convinced them to pass a law in 1907 establishing the Court of Criminal Appeal, hmm. despite the objections of all judges, lawyers, and the Home Office. None uh-huh. of them wanted this. They didn't think there should be any appeal, but eventually you know a victory for the common man right there that it is and yeah and so that's all i've got and as kelly was saying if anybody has more insight to bring to bear on this perhaps because you're in britain or for whatever other reason that would be great because i really had i had trouble with it he's making a sad face (laughs) he doesn't like it when he can't find the answers to his questions that is correct all right well that was uh tom repeats history so, and now we're, we're at the end here for the Abbey Awards. Okay. So Gibson Girl this time goes to Lady Mary. Excellent. You know, she wore a beautiful dress with blue half sleeves, sort of like what Sybil was wearing, but much better mm-hmm. executed. For Christmas, on New Year's Eve, she was wearing a very stunning burgundy number. Uh, on I'm not sure if it was New Year's Day, but it was the day of the shoot, the day of the, the arm grabbing. She was wearing this black beaded New Year's dress with a comb. I did notice that in oh, the comb. so yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. But more importantly is what she didn't wear. Yes. That hideous freaking red wartime dress. So <laughs> thank you, Mary. I'm glad you're back. Yes. Best evasion. I would, we just gave it to Julian Fellows last <laughs> week, but I would give it to him again this week for cheating us out of Lord Grantham's reaction to Mary's killer vagina. Yeah. Yeah, the, the prosecutor foiled a bunch of evasions. It's true. Well, Daisy's continuing evading, actually... Mr. Mason. Yeah. That Mr. Mason I think it's was Mr. the evader Mason. on that one. Yeah. He's really he's evading the truth. Yeah. And it's gone on for far too long, yeah. frankly. But for purposes of this award, skillfully done, sir. Yes. Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> and the best overbite goes to an old favorite, <laughs> Sir Anthony Strallen. It's, Glad to have you back, sir. I mean, it's it's a world-class overbite. Yes. Just really stunning. Yeah. Uh, and then on the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith's, Boom! That's a five. That's a five. Two fives in a row. She's just been on point. Yeah, on fire. I mean, again, from the beginning with that Christmas card shot. Oh, no question. We were like, oh, might as well just stop watching right now. (laughs) So uh, congratulations to everyone for winning the penultimate round of the Abbey Awards Mm -hmm. for uh, Series 2. We will be back again next week with the exciting conclusion of the Downton Abbey Christmas special, which has way less Christmas in it, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, put on your Christmas socks anyway and have a good listen. <laughs> yes. So until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs.
put that in your pipe and smoke it.
put that in your pipe and smoke it.